Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. World War II is an easy thing to teach when it's black and white. You know, U.S. was good, the Axis powers were bad, and good overcame evil. But in that gray, and that's where this falls, these camps fall in that gray, and that it was, it was from the United States government, and it's obviously a, a black mark on, on our government. It's a difficult subject to teach in high school because it does sort of not fit in with the narrative of, of World War II in a lot of ways. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are talking to the author of a new book called The Eagles of Heart Mountain, Bradford Pearson. This book is the true story about a group of Japanese-American teenagers who were sent to an internment camp in Wyoming during World War II and how their high school team became one of the greatest football squads in state history. I also have some choice words about Rush Limbaugh. Just stand up and just sit down awards. But first, let's talk to Bradford Pearson. Brad, thanks so much for joining us here on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dave. I really appreciate it. Awesome. So first and foremost, um, can you tell us the story in broad strokes about the Eagles of Heart Mountain? Sure. So the Eagles of Heart Mountain is about a group of uh, young Japanese-American teenagers who get pulled from their homes across the West Coast in the spring of 1942 and sent to Heart Mountain, Wyoming, which was a made-up town in Northwest Wyoming. And uh, they lived there for the next three and a half years, most of the kids. And over those three and a half years, they came together and ended up dominating the Wyoming and Montana high school football scene for those years. Wow. So just to be clear, um, so th- they they were in an internment camp in a in a state of mass incarceration, and yet there was a functioning high school on the camp, and that high school played white teams in Wyoming. Is that what happened? Yeah. So when when the Heart Mountain camp opened, it immediately became the third largest city in the state of Wyoming. So there were eleven thousand people there. So any sort of community of that size. You know, it, it basically functioned like a small city. So they had a hospital, they had high schools, they had mess halls, they had uh, farms, ceramics factories. They had all this stuff that um, the War Relocation Authority sort of begrudgingly put in there over the course of those years. But, you know, the, the first season is in 1943, which means that it's a full year after the camp actually opens. And that first year was really tough. You know, they had high school was basically held in barracks. Uh, you know, they would move people out of the barracks that they were living in so they could teach kids, uh, you know, high school and all the way down to, to kindergarten. And then basically they figured out pretty quickly, the, the War Relocation Authority figured out that we needed to come up with something to do for these high schoolers, otherwise they're just gonna a either go crazy or rebel. Uh, so pretty quickly they 
some of the, the white teachers and some of the administrators there started reaching out to other high schools across the state and said, hey, you know, would we be able to join the Wyoming uh, Athletic Association? And I think that uh, basically the, the high school athletic director at Hart Mountain pulled some strings because of his, his past and, and some folks that he knew across the state. And they started by um, scheduling some, some basketball games and the teams just got obliterated because they obviously didn't have a, a basketball court that they could play on uh, in, in the camp. But then that by the fall of 1943, they, they put together this football team and everything just sort of uh, sort of rocketed from there. Wow. Um, what was the secret to this team's success? Yeah, so when the, the kids showed up the, that first fall, the first practice, when they heard that there was going to be a team, 40 kids showed up for the first tryout, and only three of them had ever played high school football before. So basically the coaches and then the three players that had played really knew that they had to whip the rest of these guys into shape and figure out a way that they could not only play, but, you know, every high school kid wants to win the games they're playing too. This wasn't just like a intramurals. So they pretty quickly come up with a scheme where they realized, okay, look at, we're based on, uh, you know, centuries of uh, the Japanese and Japanese American diet. We're, going to be a lot smaller than all the players that we're playing against here in Wyoming and Montana. So we need to come up with a faster offensive scheme. So they ran lots of end arounds. They used a lot of sort of trick plays, but then also they would swap their players in and out a lot, which confused the opposing defenses because they couldn't really keep an eye on, uh, you know, they couldn't get a real sense of the rhythm of who these players were and who was the best players. And I think there was probably some, uh, inherent blind racism there in terms of looking at 12 uh, Japanese Americans lined up across from you. If perhaps growing up in rural Wyoming, you'd never seen one Japanese person in your entire life. So basically they, they ran this really fast scheme and would just run these teams off the, off the field every week. And, you know, remember at that time, players are playing both sides of the ball. So if you're smaller and faster you obviously you're not going to get tired as, as easily either playing both sides. So they, they ran a hurry up offense before there was even uh, a, a term before that was even really a term. They were basically running this offense that uh, allowed them to kind of use their athleticism to, uh, to, to, to win these games. And, you know, the important thing, another important thing to remember here is that because 37 kids that had tried out had never played just because those kids had never played football before, it didn't mean they weren't athletes. So they had shortstops, they had decathletes, they had a guy who was a, a state pole vault champion on the team. So they had all these kids who had, had played all these different sports, whether it was in LA or San Francisco or Seattle uh, and Hawaii before they got sent to camp that sort of used those skills and came together to create a team that, especially in the first season where they dominated, it, no one really knew what to expect when they showed up to play them. Wow. You know, I've done research in the past about about baseball at the incarceration and tournament camps. Um, it was football common? Yeah, that's a, you know, that that is sort of everyone, if they understand or, or they know anything about sports in the camps, it's, it's baseball. And that's because, you know, baseball sort of grew up in Japan at the same time as it grew up in America. So Japanese and Japanese Americans had been playing baseball for as long as Americans in America had been playing baseball. But football, you know, 
especially at the the turn of the century when the first generation of Japanese were coming to America was a completely foreign sport and and wasn't a huge sport in the United States at that point. Right. So then by you know then by the 40s the second generation the Japanese Americans are born and they're becoming teenagers and they're starting to sort of trickle onto these high school teams in Los Angeles and in the Bay Area and up in Seattle. And so, you know, some of these kids, a lot of these kids had an understanding of football and had played it from, you know, in, in a backyard game, even if they hadn't played at a varsity level. And then once they got the camp, you know, there was, especially that first fall, there was literally, there was nothing to do. It, it was completely, there was no entertainment. Everything was based on what the incarcerees themselves could sort of bring to life. The WRA was going to do them no favors, especially at the beginning in terms of uh, giving them entertainment or, and, you know, these folks showed up only with what they could carry in one bag. So, uh, you know, the fact that some of these people even brought sporting equipment is sort of a testament to how important that is in Japanese American culture. Mm. But to your, but to your original point, you know, football actually at Heart Mountain, especially really spread incredibly quickly. So there were elementary school leagues, there were middle school leagues, high school, there were leagues for, for 20 and 30 year olds. Teams were sort of assembled based geographically. So you got a bunch of guys from San Jose, they got a team together. You got a bunch of guys from LA, they got a team together. San Gabriel Valley, those dudes got a game together. So it was like, everybody sort of flocked to the people that they knew to begin with. And then it created a, a, a at first it was sort of an ad hoc system and then they created a real league uh, schedule. And, you know, the interesting thing when I started doing the research here was that Hart Mountain, the camp had, had a fantastic weekly newspaper. So it, it was run by a guy who went on to be an editor at the Des Moines Register and the Denver Post. So it was a guy who had real newspaper chops and he realized pretty quickly that a lot of people just wanted information about all these different games that were going on around camp. You know, there are 11,000 people, so you can't actually keep track of everything that's going on. So all, all these, the newspaper every week was full of these intramural box scores, high school box scores, uh, scouting reports of teams, uh, a, a announcements as to who was joining what team and who was leaving teams if, if, if people were heading off to war or whatever. So it, it was, it was a pretty incredible system that they built really quickly uh, both internally, so football games inside the camp, but then also externally in terms of playing the high school team playing uh, high schools from across Wyoming and Montana. Um, I'm, I'm overflowing with with off script questions. So let, let me just <laughs> real quick. What, what was that? I, I feel like that there's an amazing thread to be pulled about the the newspaper person who ended up in Des Moines. Um, <laughs> what what was I mean, this this was, of course, somebody of Japanese descent. Yeah. Um, what was what was their name? And uh, so his name was Bill Hosokawa, and he actually ended up becoming sort of the the Nisei generation, which is the first generation of, of Japanese Americans. He became sort of their historian. So he's written books called Nisei, The Quiet Americans. He's written East to America, which is sort of uh, a story about. Um, Japanese American uh, Japanese immigration and yeah Bill was actually uh, is he's a very interesting figure and also remains sort of at least in my eyes and researchers these days eyes sort of a little um, there's there's a lot of gray to him in that when the newspaper started in Heart Mountain the newspaper he started eventually sort of became 
more of a mouthpiece for the War Relocation Authority. Mm. So whether that was, you know, uh, talking about being patriotic Americans and doing the things that we need to do as as Japanese and Japanese Americans to make our time here more comfortable, or you know, later on in the book, I talk about how. Uh, there was a really concerted draft resistance movement within Heart Mountain and the newspaper itself. This is after Bill had left, but the newspaper was really adamantly and, and staunchly pro-draft in terms of how it aligned itself with the War Department and the War Relocation Authority. So, yeah, but then, you know, Bill left and, and went to the Des Moines Register because the thing is that when the camps opened that they only incarcerated folks who are on the west coast of the united states so if you were japanese or japanese american and you lived in salt lake city or chicago or denver you didn't have to go to a camp so the wra really emphasized and really pushed for folks once they got to the camp to to relocate somewhere else in the country so people groups a lot of people went to chicago folks went to denver uh, jobs opened up in in Dayton and Cincinnati and uh, you know all throughout the Midwest and, and for Bill that just happened to be that he got a job there was a job opening at the Des Moines Register and he worked there I think he's I think he first went there as a, a copy editor but before the war he had been a foreign correspondent and sort of reading the uh, so seeing the writing on the wall leading up to Pearl Harbor he came back to the United States knowing that as a, a Japanese American in Asia, probably wasn't the safest place for him at, at that point. But yeah, like you said, sort of a, a really interesting character and somebody that I didn't have a lot of room to explore in the book um, because, like you said, it's, it goes a little off script. But yeah, his name is Bill Hosokawa. If anyone else wants to look it up, a lot of people have written about him as well. Great. Yeah. So, so swinging it back to football and Heart Mountain, was there a Kenichi Zenimura type figure in Japanese yeah. football. Uh, not, for my listeners, uh, Kenichi Zenimura is considered the father of Japanese baseball, and he uh, was kind of an apostle for the importance of baseball as a sport. And he would go from camp to camp to even set up fields and teach the rules where need be. Was there was there someone like that? Uh, I wouldn't say not necessarily someone uh, like of that level of, of import. And and people who are interested in Zenimura, he actually appears in, in this book too, because some of the players on the Eagles end up traveling to the Gila River camp where yeah. Zenimura uh, was and, and, and playing a, a series of all-star games between the two camps. Uh, but yeah, there's nobody that sort of functions in that role specifically. But it, it was sort of an ad hoc system, and, and folks just really uh, just sort of came together to, to build this system from the ground up. But there was nobody like Zenomura who was, you know, dragging the fields and making his kids uh, pick up stones out in the baseball field, which, I mean, he's a, he's a fascinating guy that, uh, you know, a lot of folks have, have written great things about. And uh, he did a, a ton, not only for the, the sport of baseball in the Japanese uh community, but also just in terms of lifting the spirits of folks at Gila River during the war. Wow. That, that's fascinating. So I, I, I've been, been sort of circling around this question I wanted to ask you, like, how did you find this story? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's something that, that everybody asks. And, and for me, it's, it's still a bit of serendipity. So years ago, I was working on a, a freelance story up at Yellowstone. And one day when we were there, somebody who was sort of 
leading uh, the press trip that I was on at that point said, hey, you know, I think, why don't we all go check out this uh, museum, uh, which is at the site of the former Heart Mountain Camp. And I was like, okay, like I didn't have anything to do that afternoon or whatever. Um, so this is out the eastern entrance of Yellowstone, uh, right outside of a town called Cody. And I went in and, you know, sort of, you know, I, I have a history minor. I studied history all throughout high school and college. And I thought that I had a pretty decent sense of, of what I was going to see in there and, and what I knew about Japanese-American incarceration. And I walked out just completely embarrassed by how little I knew about it. Like if, if you, you know, you, you walk in thinking that you have maybe a, a meter of information and you leave have it knowing you have about a centimeter. So, but there was one small thing on one of the displays and I still remember it because I've been back to Heart Mountain a, a bunch of times since this first trip. And I, I look at this display and it's the last sentence on this display. And I still tell myself, it's probably the only time in my entire life I've read an entire museum display all the way down to the last sentence. But I'm glad I did because the last sentence talked about the Heart Mountain Eagles football team and how, despite everything, this this camp had had a great football team. And I won't say exactly what the sentence was because it gives away the last game the kids ever played. But uh, it sort of it's it I you know I left and I wrote the story about Yellowstone. But the thing is, I just couldn't get the idea of this football team out of my head. And it was only based on these two or three sentences of information. And I just sort of years, you know, six months would pass, a year would pass, and I would pop into my head again. I think, you know, I should really look into this. I should really look into this. And then I slowly just sort of started picking out the pieces of it. I contacted the the museum staff up there and asked them you know, sort of point me in a direction and they're in incredible. Uh, and especially for a staff at a small museum out in the middle of, of nowhere, America, they're, it's an incredible resource for, for people who are interested in this, but also if you're just visiting Northwest Wyoming, it's, it's, a, it's a great museum. But they uh, hooked me up with a guy who was in camp as a kid who had digitized every copy of the Hartmatt and Sentinel newspaper and the high school newspaper at the camp. So once they sent me, he sent me that, his name's Bacon Sakatani. Once he sent me that, I just started, things just started rolling. I was able to sort of piece together every season. I was able to find out who the players were, who the, you know, sort of the best players were and set up this really long spreadsheet about all the people that I wanted to contact. And then it was just, you know, checking off and seeing, you know, for, uh, as all reporters know that if you Google someone's name and the first thing that comes up is an obituary, you immediately just go to the bottom of the obituary and see who all of their living relatives are. And then, so I started reaching out to all their living relatives and things really just, just snowballed. Wow. Do we have any evidence that the young people who are part of the team saw their success as a conscious form of resistance? Yeah, I, I think it's actually the opposite. I, I think you know, I, I was able to speak with one player, one living player, and I brought this up and, and you know, I kind of had to nudge him along because I think that, you know, when you're 17, 18 years old, maybe there's, you know, some some fun in, in tackling a white guy on the field, but I don't think that consciously any of them were thinking what they were doing was their part in, in, in resisting their... Um, 
their their oppression and, and their incarceration at that moment. That said, I think that they did recognize that what they were doing when they were on the field and how much they were winning. I mean, they're drawing 5,000, 4,000 people to, from the camp mm. to, to every game. And, you know, you have to look out at that and say, okay, what we're doing here is doing something, these victories and these games, we're giving something for these people to do every day. We're giving something for them to root for. We're giving something for them the next week when they look at the newspaper and they see, they read the box scores and they read the columns about the Eagles. You know, it gave, it gave everybody in the camp this sense of pride that these kids were, you know, not only had they, they come together as a team, but they were incredibly successful. And, you know, the first season, you know, they're running teams off the field and you know, no one's scoring against them. No one's winning. No one's beating them. And it's just sort of this moment where you look at it and you say, you know, I, I would try to think about myself and, and picture myself there at those games. And, you know, before they built the camp there, there had never been a, a permanent settlement on that part of um, uh, of the United States. You know, for, for centuries, people had passed over it. Uh, tribes had passed over it as a permanent settlement. Settlers had passed over it. So when you think about the fact that there are 5,000 people mining this one football field you know there was uh, you know i say it in the book that it's incredibly unlikely that there had ever been five thousand people on that piece of earth in human history and there they are with the express purpose of of watching their sons and their their brothers and and their siblings just you know dominate the, these teams from from outside the camp wow what was the, the toughest part for you, the biggest challenge in turning this remarkable story into a book? Because, you know, there's always that question, like, should, mm -hmm. it, should this be a series of columns? Should this be a long right. form 10,000 word piece of journalism? Should this be a book? Now, yeah, so for, for me, it was like, yes. there's it's sort of two pronged in that I had the story of, of this team, but then I also realized that I could use the story of this team to tell a broader story of Japanese American life and Japanese, the story of uh, Japanese in America and, and sort of use, use the team to pull that narrative through. And I sort of viewed that pretty early on as like this Trojan horse, where if I can convince people that might not otherwise pick up a book about Japanese American incarceration, but would pick up a book about football and World War II, if I can build this narrative and build the structure of the book as these characters on this football team are pulling you through these decades of racism and xenophobia and oppression, even you know, well before the war, during the war and after the war, if I could convince folks that they're reading a football story, I can also hang all this other stuff off of it. So for me, once I thought about that, that's when I sort of realized, okay, I think I can turn this into a book. But honestly, the hardest part for me was, I, I mean, every day, you know, I'm a, a, a white guy from New York and, you know, I, I have no, I'm not Japanese American. I, I don't live in that culture. I, I'm not from, you know, Wyoming. I, I had no personal connection to this story. So for me, the hardest part was waking up every day and knowing that these people had trusted me and with their story, uh, you know, not only just the story of the players, but the story of this camp and the story of this entire culture and the story of this people. And how do I honor that? And in, in the work that I'm doing, am I honoring their stories and their legacy 
beyond a, a personal level and into a, a cultural level. So for me, that meant that I had to really just get my shit together in terms of, uh, it, it really in terms of research and knowing that my research was down. I think when I first started, I've read, I just read for like three months. I didn't write a single thing because wow. I knew that I had, I knew that I had to be so confident in my knowledge of Japanese American history and the, the, the uh, incarceration history and all these players that I could sit there and write this confidently and not constantly having to be thinking, Oh, like d- double, you know, second guessing myself. Um, and, and, and that it meant a lot of time. It meant a lot of interviews with people that you don't see in the book just to make sure that I'm getting things right. And uh, culturally getting things appropriate, even when it comes down to language and tone and interpreting situations and interpreting customs and cultures accurately. And, you know, I, I think this is probably the first time in my entire career where I've, when, as soon as I submitted the first manuscript, I sent it to the, fa- I also sent it to the families of the, the players that I, I highlighted in the book and that I centered the story on because, and I've never done that before with a, a magazine story or a, a newspaper story or anything else I've ever worked on. But for me, the difference was that this was obviously a longer project, but there were also things where I knew that there were going to be small things that I kind of fumbled or didn't understand or got a name slightly wrong or a translation incorrect. And I wanted to make sure that people couldn't find those things and disregard the rest of the story. Mm-hmm. And not, not, not because of me, but I didn't want people to disregard the story of, of this team and, and these young men. Wow. I mean, I've certainly been there as well, where you want to make sure that the book yeah. gets the history right, because you, you worry about people discrediting everything or looking for an excuse to discredit everything. Yeah. And that's the thing where it's like, you know, this book aligns a lot with a lot of the work that you've done. And you just sort of have to say, OK, you know, I, I think of myself as a reasonably empathetic person, but I've never gone through this. I've never been in a camp. I've, I've, you know, I've never experienced this level of racism or any level of racism. So how do I how do how, how do how, how do I do this? And for me, the way that I did it is just work until you don't think you can work anymore and something's due, you know, like work until it's due and just getting as much right and getting as much research and uh, into the uh, every line as you can Mm. and why do you think this story has been so undertold yeah well uh you know the story of japanese american incarceration in general is is incredibly i think in the last few years things have have really turned around a, a decent amount but i i Got, I get asked that question a lot. I got asked that a lot at the very beginning when I first started working on it. And, you know, at first I was, it was, it was frustrating to think about it. You know, it's, you, you just want to say like, oh, why didn't I learn about this in high school? Why didn't I learn about this in high school? And it's, you know, World War II is an easy thing to teach when it's black and white. You know, U.S. was good. The Axis powers were bad and good overcame evil. But in that gray and that's where this falls. These camps fall in that gray and that it was, it was from the United States government. And it's obviously a, a black mark on, on our government. So I think that part of it is just, it, it's kind of more difficult to, it's a difficult subject to teach in high school because it does sort of, 
not fit in with the narrative of, of World War II in a lot of ways. And then also, you know, culturally, it just sort of got got brushed over. The the Japanese American community when they moved back to the West Coast, they had to they they didn't have time to linger on the on, on the fact that they had been incarcerated. They had to live their lives and they had to, you know, financially they were all mostly ruined and, and had to basically start over again despite the fact that most of them and many of their families had been there for, for decades. So they had to, you know, later on in the seventies and eighties, we get the Japanese American redress movement and reparations. But for those, you know, the late forties and fifties and sixties, it was really a quiet time in terms of when folks who lived in the camps would even, would even speak about it. And most of them didn't. So there's kind of a, a few different reasons, I think, that and, – and this has – obviously, uh, I, I'm not blaming those folks for, for not talking about it and any role that that may have led in it being sort of uh, – becoming sort of a, a forgotten chapter in our history. It's just they, they had more important things to do than to linger on that, and that meant that they had to find new jobs. They had to get new homes. They had to – if they had a farm, they had to start farming again after years of their fields just – going to rot. So I, I think that there were a lot of different parts of it. And, you know, it's, it's, everything comes down to the United States. There's a certain element of racism in terms of how we teach things. So the idea of teaching about this negative part of U.S. history, I mean, that's, that's, that's what we're talking about all the time now, right? With 1619 and all these different things where so many different parts of our educational system want to turn a blind eye to all of these negative things that we've done as, as not only as a government, but as a people. And I think that there's a lot of times where it's just easier to forget about this and easier just to say, okay, that was 80 years ago. Come on. You know, and it's frustrating, but it's also the reason that books like this are important. And I'm, that's, I'm not saying that's pat myself on the back. I'm saying it from a, from a publishing standpoint that folks, the people at Simon and Schuster and Atria thought that this is an important story to tell too. Well, the book is a, an incredible triumph. Um, I mean, you should be very proud of the work you've done in bringing this to light. Um, I appreciate I, it. it it's, I mean, just congratulations to you all around. Um, is, is there anything else you want to add? Anything we're missing? Anything you want people to know about the process of doing this book? Well, the one thing that you know we sort of touched on a little bit is that there's a second narrative that goes through this, especially towards the end of the book, and that's a narrative at Heart Mountain of, of draft resistance. So the United States government, in uh, pretty much as soon as the camps opened, were trying to find ways to get Japanese Americans into the army. And right after Pearl Harbor, they'd also all basically been deemed as as aliens and weren't allowed to join the army. But then basically the military commander said, you know, we could really use some bodies in, uh, in Italy and France. And they started trying to find ways to get these kids out of camp and onto the front lines. So for obvious reasons, that didn't sit well with a lot of people that were in camp. Uh, so that led to a, a really robust draft resistance movement at all the camps, but especially at Heart Mountain and eventually led to the largest mass trial in Wyoming state history. Uh, 63 guys in the first round got uh, charged with draft resistance and eventually convicted and sent to federal penitentiary. And the reason that I, 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 I talked about it in the book a lot because I think it's an important story, but it's also, 
I thought it was important to tell because the the kids on this high school team are 16, 17, 18 years old. So these are the people who are having to make these choices as to whether to resist the draft or whether to to go to their physical and you know perhaps be sent to Salerno or, or somewhere in the south of France to to fight a war. And you know I. I you know, everybody who's written this book pretty much will have been a, a teenager at some point in their life. So when I was writing it, I would try to put myself back into their shoes and just think like, I don't know what I would have done as a 17 year old. And, you know, your family is locked up behind barbed wire, but your country, which you are a citizen of, and you're proud to be a citizen of is asking you to fight this war that everybody else in the country is fighting. Like, how do you make that decision? How do you, uh, how, how do you say you're going to go to war or how do you say you're going to resist the draft and and how does your family feel about that how does uh, the rest of the community look at your family after you've brought some level of uh, especially at that time it was seen a level of dishonor of these draft resistors and they weren't accepted in the japanese american community for decades until uh, points in the 90s that the draft resistors really started to be welcomed back into the Jap- the broader japanese american community so uh, so that's one of the things that i, I think is, is important when people are, are picking up the book to, to, to know. Mm. And last question, Bradford, and I ask this of everybody I interview, usually when working on a project like this, you know, you got to listen to some music, you got to clear your mind <laughs> when you're writing or for breaks in between writing, what, what music really got, got you going while you were working on this project? Yeah. So it, it's, it's funny. Cause you know, when I, was a features writer, I would basically pick one album and just play that album over and over again as I was um, as I was writing that single feature. So in the past, it's been like Miles Davis Live in Tokyo, I'm trying to think uh, Maggot Brain, like different ones that sort of pop up and just say like whatever for whatever reason, an old like dope smoker, uh, different things that just sort of like sat with me in that moment. But when I was writing this book, uh, there's this Houston band. Um, Krongbin that I really like and it's just sort of like it's it's kind of funky but it's really easy and the the lyrics aren't up front so I don't need to really pay attention to them uh so that was it was it was a lot of that and then I still specifically remember so from the I had most I had my first draft in before the pandemic and most of my edits done before mid-march but then I had to do all my end notes like with I have two little kids, uh, and at that point they were really little. One was three, and one wasn't even. One was like six months, mm-hmm. and so my wife and I are in this row house in Philly trying to do all this, and I was trying to get the end notes done. And eventually, I think it was like early June, and my wife was just like, "I got it. You can't do this with us here." And she took the kids to her parents' house in Maryland, and I sat here and I did the end notes, and I remember that they were like, "I for some reason I listened to that." new Freddie Gibbs album on loop doing end notes, which was just like enough to, for me to be like putting in 18 hour days doing end notes, just listening to Freddie Gibbs over and over. So that's the one that really sticks with me because it's probably the last real push I had. Um, so it was that, that Freddie Gibbs album that came out, I guess in 2020. Nice. Very cool. And I, I got to, where, where's your uh, wife from in Maryland? Cause that's where we do the podcast. Oh yeah. Yeah. She grew up in, she grew up in Frederick. Okay. Yeah, so that yeah, that's where she grew up, and then uh, we both spent. She went to uh, law school in in Baltimore at the University of Maryland, and then I lived there for a bit too. So, 
Man, all right. So you know our stomping grounds here pretty well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and then I lived outside. I actually lived in Rockville for a bit too. Okay. All right. You know, Maryland, the the, the state, the, yeah. uh, I don't know, is just kind of here. But <laughs> not sure. I think that's our state motto. Um, just here. Yeah, we're kind of here. Uh, you could do worse, I think, is the state motto. Um. <laughs> Um, well, the book is The Eagles of Heart Mountain. The author is Bradford Pearson. The, the, the text is a tag, is a, excuse me, the text is a staggering success. Um, Bradford, thank you so much for joining us. I really do appreciate it. Uh, it's been an honor, Dave. I really appreciate it. And, and all your work too. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll be putting out information about the book on the Edge of Sports feed. And we'll be back right after this quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words. Okay, look. In 2010, Rush Limbaugh had a bright idea. The right-wing shock jock would buy an NFL team, specifically the St. Louis Rams, bringing him a new level of power and respectability. The response by players in the league, even in those pre-Kaepernick times, was pretty unequivocal. I don't want anything to do with a team that he has any part of, said then New York Giant Matthias Kiwanuka. He can do whatever he wants. It's a free country, but if it goes through, I can tell you where I'm not going to play. The overwhelming dislike of Rush among the ranks of players was rooted in his racism and bigotry. The NFL players, 70% of whom are black, knew Rush Limbaugh as the guy who said, the NFL all too often looks like a game between the Bloods and the Crips without any weapons. He was still known for his infamous stint at ESPN where he spewed filth for four entire weeks his chief target being black quarterback Donovan McNabb, until he was shown the door. It turned out that NFL franchise owners, even though many of them shared Rush's politics, found him to be too vulgar, too gauche, and too much of a media headache to be let into their little club. So they turned down his bid. And in this regard, Rush was very much like the man spawned from his seed-sized heart, Donald Trump, who had made a similar bid to buy the Buffalo Bills, but franchise owners found Trump to be a boorish sleaze and showed him the door, which is ironic given their future fulsome financial support. But these franchise owners like to do their business in shadows. Now Rush became enraged at this rejection and went after the media. He was particularly upset with me and Brian Burwell, the late columnist for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, who wrote extremely critically about Limbaugh's efforts to buy the hometown team. Rush called us state-run media scum. I joked upon hearing that Rush died that I put that on a business card. But the truth is, especially as a young journalist, the experience was quite jarring. 
To be sure, state-run media scum is positively tame compared to what Rush said about Jesse Jackson, Sandra Fluke, AIDS victims, Muslims, and all manner of people he made his daily business to dehumanize. It also sounds quaint, considering what too many people, particularly women and people of color, deal with in the sewers of social media. But what made it frightening was his ditto heads, his army of followers ready to rumble at Rush's call to arms. I wouldn't say I was deluged with communiques threatening violence against me, but they did come. I also received an email from Rush's lawyers threatening legal action. Their charge was that I had defamed him by calling him a racist. I should have laughed it off. I mean, that's like saying one would be defaming water by calling it wet. But I consulted a lawyer out of fear that I was about to be destroyed by legal costs and an ever-swirling whirlwind of personal attacks. They never pursued their suit, but damned if it didn't scare me something fierce. If something positive came out of the entire situation, it is that I reached out to Brian Burwell to see how he was responding to the attacks and we became friends through the correspondence. Brian passed away in 2014, and I believe he is a forgotten pioneer as one of the great trailblazing black sports journalists of his time, and someone who is never afraid to bring a political slant to this allegedly apolitical world of sports. Brian wasn't scared a lick by Rush, and his courage was contagious. As for Rush, the threats faded, as did his interest in our persecution. Rush didn't dwell on his rejection by the NFL because it would have meant criticizing the rich white billionaires to whom he'd spent his career in slavish service. Rush still lived on to launch Donald Trump and put his permanent stamp on the Republican Party as one rooted in white grievance, bigotry, and incitement to violence. He was the worst kind of bully, one who would only attack the vulnerable and cry in a corner when the beaten down dared to strike back. He called us scum for calling out his racism. But as Martin Sheen said in the movie Wall Street, if that's scum, I'll take it over a rat any day. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to every NBA player, and there are a lot of them, from LeBron James to Giannis Antetokounmpo, who are all calling for the league to scuttle the All-Star game. And they should scuttle the All-Star game in Atlanta. It is a COVID super spreader type event that is utterly meaningless in the grand scheme of the NBA season, especially a truncated 72-game season. So it's absolutely absurd that it's going on. But I want to give a specific shout-out to a young player who is a borderline All-Star, somebody who's beyond entertaining to watch, and somebody who's very young. And his name is De'Aaron Fox, the guard for the Sacramento Kings. I love De'Aaron Fox. I love watching De'Aaron Fox play. I've loved him since college. I'm just a huge 
stand for De'Aaron Fox. I'm standing him, as the kids say, or as the kids said 15 years ago. And De'Aaron Fox was asked about the All-Star game, and he said, quote, If I'm going to be brutally honest, I think it's stupid. If we have to wear a mask and do all of this for a regular game, then what's the point of bringing the All-Star game back? Obviously, money makes the world go round, so it is what it is. I really appreciated what De'Aaron Fox said. It took courage as a young guy to stand up and say such a thing. It took courage especially because he plays in Sacramento, which is a tough place to become an all-star from due to their years of failure and their small media market. So a huge shout out to De'Aaron Fox for showing some leadership on this. There's no way this all-star game should be played. I think if the NBA of all leagues should have learned something, it's that COVID should provoke a degree of care and carefulness when approaching their sport and not this kind of reckless nonsense. So just stand up to De'Aaron Fox. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down is going to Jerry Jones. Jerry Jones has made a fortune off the horrific, horrific freeze that's taking place in Texas. Jerry Jones is cashing in on it. Um, he is the majority stockholder in an, a natural gas driller called Comstock Resources Incorporated. And they've been selling gas at quote unquote super premium prices since this has started. And according to the president of Comstock, quote, it's been like hitting the jackpot. Um, it's just beyond disgusting, beyond disgusting. This is Jerry Jones, a person who was given um, $325 million to open up his massive stadium, Jerry World, as we call it, or the Boss Hog Bowl. And now he's making an absolute fortune by gutting the people of Texas as they search for some form of natural gas. So Jerry Jones, you are the worst of the worst, profiting off of tragedy. Sit your ass down. By the way, a corollary Just Stand Up Award stand up. for all the athletes, unlike Jerry Jones, who've been stepping up in Texas. You know my belief on this is that I'm always inspired by athletes who are standing up. I'm always inspired by athletes who are doing things for their community. But make no mistake about it, this is what the local, state, and federal government should be doing. So there's something dystopic about athletes having to step in to feed communities when that should be the responsibility of our broken society. So while I'm incredibly impressed with athletes, particularly a former Texas athlete who's got a place in my heart named Robert Griffin III, who's fed over 10,000 people over the last several days as of this broadcast. So shout out to them for their big hearts and willingness to open their wallets. Shout out to them for being the converse of Jerry Jones. But let's not forget who should be responsible for the suffering in Texas and who should be responsible for keeping people alive. And it ain't the athletes. But let me say it in case I wasn't clear. Jerry Jones, sit your boss hog ass down. Sit your ass down. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Again, Jerry Jones, sit your ass down. 
Thank you so much to everybody who's part of this podcast. Thank you so much to Bradford Pearson. The name of the book is The Eagles of Heart Mountain. Thanks to everyone at The Nation Magazine for being part of bringing this podcast to life. Thank you to my producer, David Tigaboo. If you want to talk to me, Dave Zirin, you can always hit me up on the Twitters, at Edge of Sports. For everybody out there listening, mask up and please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.